Welcome to Faith Across Borders. I'm your host, Graeme Joseph Hill. Faith Across Borders is a podcast that is catalyzing innovative Christian faith through global conversations and local initiatives. Each week we bring you insightful conversations with experts, leaders and visionaries around the world who bring new perspectives in growing your faith in your spiritual journey. Today's guest is Melba Padilla Magay, a Filipino writer, social anthropologist and social activist and the founder of the Institute for Studies in Asian Church and Culture. For sponsorship inquiries, please email faithacrossborders at gmail.com. Please stay tuned. You've written historically that the church tends to either be on the side of power or powerlessness, uh, social compassion or social construction. What do you mean by that? Well, basically, you do have, like, say, evangelicals, a very good way, compassion, delivery of services, and so on. But we very rarely think about society as a whole, how to see to it that uh, it's more just, and the power relations actually work. So you either have people just doing personal compassion, or social construction. Or you also have people thinking liberation, you know, as in liberation theologians. Or you have people mostly thinking about the church as a community sitting on a hill and by its life witnesses to the reality of Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, those are, in fact, I think, representative of certain theological traditions. Um, but I think, by and large, it's it also is what has happened historically. Yeah. You either have people who who uh, try to influence structures so much that they become worldly. You know, you saw that during the papacy in the Middle Ages, where you have competition between the state and the in the in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also be sidelined and marginalized as mm. a community. Mm. Um, so that what happens is that you find yourself, like for instance, many churches in the West these days find themselves on the margins. You know, when I mm. go to Europe, when I go to the US, there's always this complaint that mm. uh, we are no longer the majority voice, even in public space. You cannot have prayer in schools. You have to be very, very careful to have this separation of church and state and all the rest of it. Um, in other words, the church, because it has been sidelined, has now uh, this feeling of being besieged, you know, mm. by these hordes of people coming. And this is especially now in crisis in Europe and things like that. So I think it's important to recover the wholeness of what the Bible means for the church community to be in the world and a global context. How does the church's mission relate to social justice and social action? Well, first of all, I think um, there is such a thing as the witness of the church as a community But also, there is uh, such a thing as the prophetic tradition. 
where if you want to faithfully preach the word, the word mm -hmm. has to be something that speaks to you, not just in relation to issues like salvation. You said you have to get saved, get mm -hmm. a ticket to heaven, no? But you need to have uh, preaching of the word that speaks to the powers. So in a mm. way, I think people don't have to feel they need to be social activists, they need mm. to be members of Congress or something like that. They should be those who are politically gifted. Mm. But those are very few. It's not the church as a whole. But the church as a whole can speak mm. prophetically in their offices. You know, in other words, uh, to say when things are going wrong, if I'm working in government, I will just have to say, I'm sorry, you know, this is wrong. Now, that is the prophetic tradition. You don't have to be, you know, a school of prophets <laughs> now to be able to do that. The whole church community should be doing that in whatever area of life they find themselves in. For instance, uh, I used to work in government. Under martial law, um, because I was working as a reporter, um, and I have just graduated fresh from university, and my newspaper was the first newspaper to get shut down when martial law was declared, and so I had to shift writing speeches for cabinet ministers, and at some point I remember the uh, first lady. Mrs. Marcos running for office and our executive office, which is directly servicing her needs, we were told that we must go to the slums, you know, uh, in groups of three, one should be speaking, one should be, you know, talking to the people and, and in, by and large campaigning for, for her. So I had to tell my boss, I'm sorry, this is wrong. This is not our job. We are not supposed to be politicking. We are civil servants. We are not at the service of any politician. So I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this. It's wrong. That is being prophetic, mm. you know, in a very ordinary sort of way, mm. if you are in governance. And that's mm. true if you're in business. In other words, mm. we have to be able to say, that says the Lord, this is wrong, mm. and I'm not going to do it. And I think there is enough power in refusal. I have seen this again and again. When we're up against corrupt officials and simply saying, I'm sorry, we are Christians. We are not going to do this. And 90% of the time, they end up respecting it. Mm. Like in that case, my boss simply said, okay, you stay in the office. And I was the mm. only one allowed. And of course, the rest of the people who are also social activists, we're saying, how come Elba gets to? I said because I, you know, I spoke my piece. Mm. I knew I could lose my job, but I suppose that's the difference between me and the rest. Mm. We are all social activists. We all have social mm. functions, but you know, they just complain. But in my case, I stood up and I said, this is wrong. I cannot, in conscience, do this. And of course, you're putting your job on the line. Remember, this is martial law. But I think that's the difference between the Christian and someone who's not. You know, you can hem and how and complain and the rest of it. But 
when it comes to putting your job on the line and trusting God. Mm. But if you do what is right, then it's in the hands of the Lord. Mm. And I think if Christians took seriously the life of faith, you know, even in social justice issues, you need to have a lot of faith. You know, I mean, people think that faith is needed only for salvation. No, you need mm. faith all the time to stand up for what is right, you know. Mm. And in a way, be prophetic in that way. So that's for the whole church. It's not just mm. for those of us who are politically gifted or that's mm. our peculiar calling. Mm. Do you think that there are some biblical models of effective involvement? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for mm. instance, you have, um, there are many shades to it. One is being able to discern the times. Mm. That's the Joseph model, you know, sort of hearing carefully the dreams, the visions of people, the king, mm. the pharaoh, things like that, and being able to articulate that and verbalize it. You know, that's a very important, I think, you know, the insight into what the time is like. You know, like the men of Issachar, they can discern the times. No? So that's, that's part of it. The other yeah. is, of course, uh, administering justice. That was said of David. And that is also true of Daniel. You know, able to administer justice, good governance. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also, I think, uh, requires someone like Nathan speaking to David, you know, the prophet speaking to the king without fear. So you do have all these nuances mm -hmm. of what it means to speak for justice. Mm -hmm. And as you flagged, you've needed to work some of this out in your own experience in the Philippines yeah. during the rise and fall of the Marcos regime. Do you have some examples from your own life that illustrate the way in which the church can be involved in the struggle for justice? Well, first of all, I think, um, well, unfortunately, the evangelical yeah. community was like the, uh, you know, it was interesting to me during the people power revolution yeah. in 1986, that there were two groups of people who refused to be part of it. One was the very radical extremists, you know, political mm. activists, uh, more the left-wing, very sort of Marxist-oriented uh, kinds of groups. You know, they think people power is a children's crusade. You know, you have this widow in yellow trying to fight the most powerful president we have ever had. So, I mean, who said, you know, women should just stay in the bedroom and, mm. you know, not, not do anything. Mm. And at the same time, so you have these very cynical sort of groups who are very savvy about power relations and all the rest of it and saying, you know, it's a children's crusade, what you're doing. The other is evangelicals who kept uh, waving this flag, Romans 13. You know, you should not be protesting against the powers. Huh? You should be subject to authorities. Um, we have this small community in Isaac, you know, our institute, um, 
Institute for Studies in Asian Church and Culture. We're just a small minority of evangelicals. But that was not our reading of the times. We felt that the relevant text was, wrong, was not Romans 13. The relevant text was Revelation 13. In other words, there are historical moments when the church has to fight because the state has ceased to be a servant of God. In Romans 13, it is understood as a servant of God. And of course, we must you know, do our duties by it. But in Revelation 13, the state has become a beast. And there are always historical moments, you know, whether it's in the reign of what? Of the Caesars, no? Or in the reign of dictatorships in the Philippines, in Latin America, many places. Park Chung-hee, all these other Asian despots, no? That was a whole movement of totalitarianism, authoritarianism. And I felt that that, that was a historical moment when the state has ceased to be a servant. It has become a beast to its own people. You know, all these desaparecidos in Latin America, all our dissidents, you know, who have gone to the hills and, and been killed. I have many of my friends, personal friends, who have been killed during martial law. And I thought at that time, it's not Romans 13, which is relevant. It's Revelation 13. And when the state ceases to be a servant and instead uh, acquires the proportion of a beast, it should be resisted. That was our reading as a small community. And I think it's important for the church to be able so that it doesn't miss its historical cues, no? It's important for the church to have a minority of people like us who could read the times and who could apply the right text to the right context. Because most people, I mean, just uh, apply, you know, the text without uh, thinking context. Mm. It's very important, and now people talk about contextualization, but even historically and in social justice issues, it's important to always think mm. context. You don't just apply the text, you know, in a literal sort of way. You need to understand the dynamics of the historical context that you're working with and be able to apply the right text. And of course, we were at odds with our evangelical leadership at that mm. time. And they kept, you know, saying, you know, the head of the um, Council of Churches at that time was saying, you know, we must be sober, we must be you know, dutiful citizens, be subject, we should not be part of anything that will subvert government and all the rest of it. And, you know, privately he kept saying that, you know, this Isaac, you know, they're subversive. Well, I said, well, Christianity is probably, uh, as far as I can read it, not revolutionary in the sense that you tear everything down. Huh? This is hard to rebuild. But Christianity certainly is subversive. It's subversive of the powers. It does it softly, mm -hmm. but eventually it's subversive. It's like Jesus. You know, he did not frontally attack the powers. That was not mm -hmm. his agenda at that time. 
But eventually, the church communities through the centuries began to separate. And even mm. in the time of Paul, you have Paul talking to Philemon, you know, and cutting across this institutional mm. slavery, beginning with the personal relationships of a church community. And that's where it begins. No? Mm. So I, I think people tend to make a very sharp distinction between the church community and the um, and the, those who are in professionally in social activism. I think they, it should be seamless because that's also where it begins. Mm. That's where the subversion begins mm. in our relationships. When Philemon starts to treat the slave, no, Onesimus, on an equal footing, that is subversive. Mm. Eventually, you are subverting a whole institution. Mm. I mean, the whole Greco-Roman civilization was born on the backs of slaves. Mm. And then you have this tiny minority of Christians equalizing, mm. you know, and putting in social terms mm. what the Magnificat means, you know. The lifting up of the lowly yeah. and the overthrowing of the mighty. So you need to see that reversal, first of mm. all, in the church community. Otherwise, we have no tongue prophetically to the rest mm. of the world. So we cannot, you know, sort of tear these things apart the relationship mm. part and the structural part. Mm. It seems often that the church gets embedded in the power structures of the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what are ways that the church can resist? that embeddedness in those power structures and systems? Well, you need, as I said, you need mm. to have a critical element, a reforming mm. element within the church. Mm. What, you know, the Bible calls the remnant. You know, even in mm. Israel, I mean, the, the prophets have always been outside of the religious establishment. So to keep the faith mm. alive, you need to have a reforming, a critiquing element. And in our case, that was us. I mean, we we got, we, it was terrific suffering in the beginning. I mean, it's good that we were professionals, so we could earn our keep, you know, because nobody wanted to touch us with a 10-foot pole. They, mm. they say, well, Marxists, you know, those people never get converted, you know, and, mm. you know, uh, you know, that Melba, she, she used to be a Marxist and probably still is and all the rest of it. So it's, it's, uh, it was very difficult in the beginning. But, you know, after 30, 40 years, the tide has turned. What does it mean for the church to embrace the tasks associated with the images of prophet, priest and king? Well, first of all, I think the church has to understand that, that as a body of Christ, we are meant to be prophets, priests, and king, like mm. like the Lord Jesus. Before in the Old mm. Testament, these were intention. Mm. Now it's all unified in the person of Christ, and it now also has been delegated to the church community as a whole. And there will be elements in the body of Christ that are within the prophetic tradition. In other words, they are particularly good with discerning the times and speaking a prophetic word. That could be pastors in the pulpits who are able to do that. It could also be simply professionals like us, you know, 
who are able to be, you know, sociologists, anthropologists, and, mm. and at the same time apply the text in our context. So that's the prophetic. But you also need to be in the in the body of Christ, people who actually perform the priestly task, by which we mean not just the clerics, no, the clergy, mm. but but people who, in whatever walk of life they are, are able to bring the power of God to the world and bring the need of the world to God. That's the priestly tradition. In other words, we are all priests unto God, you know, we are told. So I think people don't realize that we have tremendous resources in prayer. You know, that's a universal gift yeah. of the whole church. It's not just, you know, all these enthusiasts, no? It's yeah. us. And we, we have tremendous... Uh, uh, this is something I, through the years, I've had to learn because I'm not charismatic. No? Uh, I'm not uh, particularly, I think my gifts are not in that direction. And I've had to learn through the years to learn that those are actually Latin powers that are for the whole church, not just for the ones who are especially gifted. And the, the priestly tradition means that in whatever way, I'm conscious that this, you know, this uh, context of need needs the supernatural work mm. of Christ. And through the years I, in social development, I have began to realize work for the poor is difficult. There is no way it can be done without the power and the spirit of God. Yeah. And this is where we must be priests. You know, you come face to face mm. with people with such need, and you know, you find yourself just praying because there's nothing you can do really. Mm. And that's the priestly tradition. You somehow bring the presence of God, you know, to this awful mess and this awful situation. Mm. And I find that. Social activists tend to forget the priestly tradition. Yeah. We're prophets. Mm. Huh? We're very good with that. But we're not good being priests. Yeah. What it means to really get into the presence of God and allow that presence to bring, you know, bring people somehow uh, yeah. to a new social reality. Uh, and that's that requires supernatural gifts, which we all have mm. in the first place, you know. Uh, and increasingly, I have begun to realize that I myself have not really tapped into the tremendous resources of of who we are as priests. And also, of course, the kingly one is 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 the ability to manage all that is created under God. Uh, kingship, leadership, and governance. Um, I think those of us in the third world don't realize that that's a major gifting that needs to be surfaced in the church, not just the priestly or the mm -hmm. prophetic tradition, but the kingly tradition, because um, so much of our poverty, you know, after colonization. It's not really because of our historical, you know, sort of handicap because of 
the experience of imperialism and all the rest of it. That's part of it. It's part of history, but that's history. The present is that we are actually not governing ourselves properly. I mean, you have a new elite, you know, that's exercising kinship in a very bad way. Most of the poverty of the world today is because of bad governance. And this is, this is something that I hope in this global assembly will be heard. Much of our poverty is because of bad governance. So it, the Christians who are, who are gifted in this way, you know, technically gifted, you know, with vision, with, with leadership, you know, must mm. push themselves forward. Because so much of our poverty has to do with that. You know, bad management mm. of resources. I mean, many of the countries that are poor in the world are not poor in resources. They're natural. Mm. I mean, mm. Philippines, for instance. Mm. I mean, there's no mm. reason to be poor. Mm. I mean, we have immense natural mm. resources and human resources, highly educated, mm. all the rest of it. There is no reason why we should be poor, except bad governance. Mm. And that's true, whether you're talking Africa, Latin America, mm. you know. Mm. So I think it's important that we um, recover the centrality also of the kingly tradition. Mm. How does social transformation relate to the discipline of the cross? Well, I think, first of all, um, we need to be able to do the work of transformation out of weakness. That is the way of the mm. cross. That is the way I think it is marked out for those of us who are serious in our discipleship. Because so much of so-called social transformation goes, you know, gets sidelined by all kinds of things. Because, precisely because it gets seduced by power. The cross, to me, uh, outlines for us what it means to be with power, that it is always under the cross, that we have to be prepared to serve out of weakness. In other words, it's very easy to get, you know, like the Lord Jesus too went through this, no, in the temptations. Command these stones to become bread. In other words, uh, there is this, there's this very strong messianic uh, sense that you must feed all these people. And the Lord Jesus, of course, he fed twice, no? The 5,000. I suppose more than that because they don't count the women and the children. But that was not the central point of his very limited life. So he says, you know, you know, if people come to me, it should be because I deserve to be worshipped. It's not because I can feed them. I think the church always has problems in this way, especially development organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that we are solving something if we are feeding the poor. Of course we must, and that's part mm -hmm. of the messianic mission. Uh, but I think once we start doing it, like Mao Zedong, you know, you feed. Mm -hmm. 
8 million Chinese, 800 million Chinese, and you get very prominent, right? Because you're able to have a massive feeding program. And Jesus mm. could have done that, mm. but he did not. Why? Because I think he doesn't want people to come to him because mm. he can feed them. He certainly is the bread of life. But um, I think he understood that a man will bow before the hand that feeds him. Yeah. All dictators know that. You give them bread in circus, huh? yeah. from the time of the Caesars. Yeah. So I think we need to be very, very careful that we don't use our resources. That's why you get, you know, in India, for instance, other places, starting in the 18th century, you have all these rice Christians. People come because they can be fed, mm. but they shouldn't come to Jesus because of that. Mm. And it's very easy to tangle, you know, dangle mm. that as a carrot to poor people. Mm. We've just had Typhoon uh, Yolanda, and I've seen how all these relief organizations use it, you know, relief in exchange for conversion. Mm. That's another version of that. You, we don't ever use our resources for people to come to Christ. And the same with uh, power. Huh? I shall give you all these kingdoms mm. of this world. Now, in our case in the Philippines, uh, we have one who's, uh, who has run for president. Yeah. Who's a church leader. And I sort of sense that not only does he have a missional confusion, but I think he had this notion that, you know, we must, Christians should be exercising dominion over the rest of the land, no? And, you know, that's the application of the kingly tradition in a wrong way. Yeah. Uh, we are not to wield power in that way. Because in the first place, the church has power by itself. When we are truly ourselves, when we are truly the, the community of God, we have power. We don't need politics. We have power by ourselves. And um, I think sometimes people make the mistake that certainly it is good to exercise the kingly tradition, to be in power structures, to speak to the powers. But I think it's important to realize that we are not really changing the world that way. And because many get waylaid by this, you know, temptation to power. Even in church communities, I have seen very few leaders who can actually mm. handle power. And that's why the course is very important. That we must again and again be prepared to say no to all these temptations mm -hmm. and, and simply rely on the power of the course and the power of the resurrection. That mm -hmm. we, we will rise again. And you've talked about practices of radical pessimism and practices of radical optimism. Can you explain what you mean? by those terms, and what do those practices look like? Well, by radical pessimism, mm. uh, as I was saying, mm. it's like the temptations. Mm. 
No? In other words, we don't fool ourselves. We don't get delusional and think that uh, we will transform the world. If we have enough resources to feed people, we have enough mm -hmm. resources. I mean, many development theorists no? talk mm -hmm. about you know, Jeffrey Sachs, for instance. Mm -hmm. He was saying, we have within our power to solve the problem of poverty. I said, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's enough natural resources to feed everyone. But it's very mm -hmm. optimistic in the sense that it, it does not realize the radicality of either Israel and self-interest. So this is radical pessimism. In other words, we are not going to get waylaid by all these promises that we can do things apart from the power of the cross. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, to me, mm -hmm. radical pessimism. I'm not, um, I think faith-based development organizations have to be very, very careful mm -hmm. not to, uh, blow out of proportion what we can and cannot do. Mm. We can do certain things, but there are certain things just we cannot do. In other words, yeah. my own experience in social development these past, what, 40, almost 40 years is that, um, you know, just to move poor people from a very deep sense of despair to a sense of hope, from a deep sense that nothing can be done to a sense that, you know, things are possible. Just to move them psychologically, it takes the Spirit of God to do it. You know, I remember um, this boy um, I was interviewing. We have this, what we call the Smoky Mountains, all these mountains mm. of garbage. He was living off that in many other families in that community. And I was saying to him, you know, there's this group, you know, YWAM coming in and uh, to do sort of social work and all the rest of it. And he was saying, well, mom, we already have 300 NGOs in this community, but we're still poor. He has no great expectation that things will get better. They will get some relief, some mm. services, that's it. But we will still be here. We will mm. still be living off this garbage. And I realized that for the poor, um, you know, things are very, uh, well, Eric Fromm, you know, the psychoanalyst, has this notion that there are two kinds of people that are really radically conservative. They're very rich and they're very poor. Mm. Because both of them think, you know, the rich think, I am entitled to all is well. Huh? This is the state of nature. Privilege is the state mm. of nature. For the, for, the, um, for the very poor, this is also the mm. case. Poverty is the state of nature. Things are not going to get any better. This is as good as it gets that mm. I have three square meals a day, and that's it. My parents, my kin, my neighbors, all of us will be the mm. same. You may have all these outside interventions from do-gooding people, but we will be the same. So there is this 
conservatism psychologically. Mm. The things are not going to be any better. So just to move these people, mm. you know, from point A to B to a sense of hope and a sense of desperation. Mm. It requires, you know, the, the spirit of God just to mm. just to engage the imagination. Yeah. So it's a it's 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 important to be aware that um, true transformation, first of all, requires a very deep sense of the tragedy of things. That's radical pessimism. At the same time, radical hope also means that I have an immense confidence in the Spirit of God. This is where the Holy mm. Spirit comes in. The immense confidence in the Spirit of God. Mm. We certainly cannot do it. So in a way, I think all of us have to also have a sense that there's nothing really I can do. Because, mm. you know, those places in the heart and in the mind, you know, strongholds of the mind. You, you know, in charismatic circles in our country, there's all this talk about strongholds. Huh? But you know, spiritual strongholds are not mm. primarily out there. Mm. When Paul speaks about strongholds mm. in Corinthians, he talks about strongholds in the mind. All these proud obstacles mm. in the mind, you know, that serve as a barrier to the knowledge of Christ. And I think that in many parts of the majority world, the, you know, the, the strongholds of the mind are such that, you know, you can, you can be kept in generational poverty. Um, the caste system, for instance, in India, or familyism in Southeast Asia, the rest of Asia, uh, the clan system, you know, you can bring in all these modern political systems where the truth is it's, it's all just one or a mm. surface, you know, the deep structures are still the clan systems. Mm. And those things you cannot change. It's only by the Spirit of God that you can change it. You know, it's, a, it's very radical changes mm. in the mind, you know, that's why Romans talks about being renewed in your mm. mind. That's where it begins. It shouldn't mm. end there, but that's where it begins, you know. You begin to get transformed by the renewal of your mind. And and to me, uh, that is a major project of the church these days. Mm. What it means to see the human imagination as a battlefield as an arena. This is why communication is very important. Mm. All the social media, all mm. the work of the imagination, you know, especially for our young people now. Yeah. Because people don't respond to abstract things anymore. I mean, mm. they want to be visual, they mm. want to see, they want to feel it, right? mm. to be real. Mm. Now, that requires ways of being imaginative. Mm? Mm. In other words, we engage, this is the time for Books like Revelation, you know, I think the reason, you know, it is so, so misunderstood is because very mm. few people can think imaginatively and very few theologians for that matter. Mm. So 
I think, but that's, you know, the, the ability to think in symbols, to, to capture people's imagination. That's where most young people are now. That's also where many pre-modern people are in the rest of the third world. You know, I think it's the West which is an exception. Mm. Very linear, it's very mm. sort of abstract, you know, mm. just theologizing. Mm. Um, well, that has its purposes, but it's, mm. it is a very limited uh, usefulness mm. in an age like this. So I think that's, that's where you, we need to be aware of the demonic as well. Mm. You know, we, we're not, we don't realize that the, the strongholds of the mind uh, are very real. Mm. That's why people are kept poor. You know, they're kept poor by what? By mm. What they think is the state of nature. So, I mean, even to have a sense of hope. Uh, we've been, the past year and a half, we've been working among disaster victims of uh, Typhoon Yolanda. And one of the things that we realized was it's only the Spirit of God who can give people a sense of hope. We can, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a place where the Spirit of God alone can go. The human imagination, the human sense that things can be fixed. You know, in the West, everything can be fixed. <laughs> but, you know, when, when, when you're poor in, in the two-thirds world, you think that nothing can be fixed. How would you define integral mission? Well, that's a very, it requires a very long answer. Well, integral mission to me is really just being able to see all of human reality with the eyes of God and being able to see him in all activity, not just in things like evangelism or even social action, mm. but, even, but being able to see the reality and presence of God everywhere and having the eyes mm. to see it and articulate it and work for it. Um, maybe just to give you an example. To me, integral mission means, you know, thinking creationally, um, that we are aiming not just for a ticket to heaven, but the, the new heaven and the new earth. You know, we're not going anywhere. There, you know, the Bible does not promise that we're going somewhere, you know, <laughs> up in the air. It is this earth that we will inherit. And we will be given a new heaven and a new earth. Of course, done by the power of God. No? Like the new Jerusalem coming down um, from above. Right? But you... All the images have to do with the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our God. 
So you're not thinking some ethereal place somewhere. But it is here. Then this is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God. That's heaven. And in Jesus, heaven and earth have come together. So that wherever Jesus is, then that's heaven. So I think people need to realize that integral mission means that God now fully, really covers the earth with his glory. It says that we don't have eyes to see it. In all of our lives, in our everyday life, in those moments when we are more most aware of, of his presence as a church community, those moments when we see some social transformation, when we see the kingdom at work, huh? like in our people power, I sort of felt that that was a historical moment where really heaven came down. And even our old people would say that, you know, God had mercy on us, he had come down. That's the way they, that's the language of our people, talking about people power. So, it's to me, integral mission is, is seeing the kingdom at work, always, in our midst. Um, so, you have that, you know, the whole creation being renewed. You also have a sense that, well, relationships are getting repaired, you know, this whole idea of reconciliation, yeah. you know, with God and our neighbor, um, the, you know, the second commandment, no? Then you have, to me, uh, it's also the deepening and being increasingly conformed to the image of the Son, that's the discipleship, that's the Great Commission. I have what we call uh, three C's, the cultural mandate, the Great Commandment, and the Great Commission. Unfortunately, mm. most people simply think mission in terms of the Great Commission. No. The, the mission of God, the mission day, begins with go forth and multiply. You know, this... Uh, is mandate for us to yeah. inhabit the earth and and fill it and so on. So it's a, I think it's unfortunate that that has been mostly in the debate between evangelism and social action. That's the way it has come to us as churches. But I think yeah. it has to be framed in a much larger picture. You know that yeah. you actually have this whole transformation, the new earth and the new heaven, and the transformation of ourselves as human communities, and the church as the beginning community, you know, that, that is where it begins, the transformation of humanity. Uh, so I think we, we need to have a much wider theological frame for it. Yeah. In what way do you see Micah playing a part in God's mission today? Well, first of all, it's it's already a great gift that mm. we have Micah in the first place. Um, I used to belong to um, what we call partnership mission, 
which is actually the precursor of uh, infinite. And now uh, many people from the infinite also were part of the framers of the MICA declaration. Mm. I, you know, the MICA declaration, Ranepati and myself and two British, you know, we, we did, did the thing. And uh, I would like to think that the mere fact that the alliance exists, it's a step forward. Uh, as Because it's important to have a global community that incarnates the concern of God for the poor. To me, that is what MICA stands for. And secondly, um, the the thing this this in this global assembly of having to deal with the power structures is taking it a step forward. In other words, it, we're leveling up, and it's important to grasp that in this day and age, you need to be a global community to be able to take on the powers. Because we have little, all these little NGOs on the ground. But if you have a global mm. community that can stand on the side of these little parts of the body of Christ working on the ground, then we could have uh, a great deal of influence in relation to the powers. Mm. Um, and I hope that is what Micah mm. can become. Um, like for instance, these days, I mean, I'm very happy that the Pope, for instance, has begun to speak about all the persecuted Christians, all these Christian minorities under pressure. Mm. Because in the West, it's not politically correct. Mm. Mm. No? You, you know, it's easy to talk about human rights when it comes mm. to others, but not Christians getting killed. And I was very happy that the Pope chastised the secular mm. governments and said, how come nothing is being said about this? And you have this mm. all over the place, not just in the Middle East, Asia as well. So I think it's important to stand together in this work. And persecution is not going to be, you know, I think it is going to intensify. So we, we need to think carefully how to stand together with all the mm. Christian minorities in the world. That's one. So MICA can be mm. in a way because it's a global community. I hope that we have more visibility in public mm. issues. Mm. We don't have to be very, very big. We just have to be cohesive. Um, that's what I learned in our people power. Yeah. You know, I remember when we decided, you know, I sent off the men on Saturday, because Saturday afternoon we had this military defection. Ramos and Riley, they defected from that and announced to the world we are going to, to uh, you know, break, break out of this dictatorial rule. And, and uh, Cardinal Sim, sent a word to the people that we must have a human buffer around this, this you know, uh, this small cadre of, of the military who have defected. 
And I sent our men to try and see what's happening. Five o'clock in the morning the next day, we had a meeting and prayed whether we will go. And we decided we will go. And so I said, okay, I mean, <clears throat> let's send the news to the two radio stations that are still alive at the time, which is the Christian radio station and the Catholic one. And those are the only stations mm. that were left. No, everybody was shut down. So, so I said, you know, let's, you know, send word. We will, you know, be at Camp Aguinaldo in front of the gate, uh, gate three, and so on. And I remember one of my staff saying, "I who are we asking about you? Be asking all the evangelicals to come." <laughs> I mean, he says. We are not PCEC, we're, we're just a small organization. I said, you know, this is a historic moment. Let's issue a call and see who will come. Mm. Now, the interesting thing is that all these people from small churches, in fact, outside the cities, you know, nearby provinces, by mm. busloads coming. And they are not uh, your theologians or all that. They're all these women bringing all these sandwiches and all the, you know, to help us. And and, and many, many of them are ordinary people, church people. Mm. They say, we just want to come here. And I remember one lady coming and registering and saying, you know, for some reason, I think God wants me to be here. And I brought my baby here, yeah, because mm. I recognize this is, you know, God is doing something. I want my baby to be here. You know, it's a dangerous thing, but she mm. brought her baby. And many others, you know, coming um, from many church communities. Because I have always thought that we are a small minority of sort of more reflective evangelicals in the city. And that's about all the constituency we have, you know. But I did not realize that there are all these church people coming and saying we want to be here because God has led us here and He's doing something. And that was very important to me. One of the things, one of the things I learned from that experience is that you don't have to be a big organization. What is important is that you're dis you're able to discern the times and you're able to speak your truth. You're able to sing that song and sing, sing it faithfully, and the people yeah. will come. You know, the Lord Jesus saying, "My people hear my voice; my sheep will hear my voice." If it is an authentic voice from the Spirit of God, the church, the remnant, will hear it. Of course, there are others who will not. You know, for instance, mm. one of our foremost evangelical theological establishments, they, they kept debating, you know, it's fourth day, they're still debating whether mm. they should go <laughs> to the people power, huh? And in the end, they decided, you know, if you'd like to go, you just go, but you cannot go under our flag, huh? Mm. And I thought it was very sad that the church leaders, and the theologians were on the sidelines. And these ordinary people came. Mm. 
So I think you don't have to be a big organization. You just have to raise a flag mm. and, and, and raise a flag that authentically speaks from the spirit of God. Mm. And, and the sheep will hear his voice. Yeah. And, and to me, that has been a great encouragement. You, you don't uh, measure significance by numbers. Because at a historic moment, people will come out of the woodwork, you know, and recognize that voice. Melba hmm. Padilla Magay, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Faith Across Borders. If you want to stay connected with us and receive updates on future episodes, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify. You can also follow us on social media at Faith Across Borders to join the conversation and share your thoughts. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions and enlightening episodes.